This is a fourth hand production. Story in the news today. You believe in ghosts and the paranormal? Are they are they UFOs or are they like some crazy experimental, you know, governmental I don't uh, know planes that they're building? And police in Española are catching more than just criminals. They're catching images of what they believe are ghosts. There's this weird animal-like creature that was shot, wolf-like creature that just stood out in some odd way. And welcome to Strange Uncles, everyone. I'm Shane. I'm John. Josh. And uh, this is actually a unique episode and something we've been uh, working through uh, for a while now. So, and finally we made it all come back together. Um, we actually have a guest in the studio today, or remotely, I guess I should say, in the, in the COVID crisis of it all. Uh, Bruce Fenton is a British scientific researcher and media personality. He is a well-known explorer and a prominent researcher on ancient mysteries. He has made appearances on History Channel's Ancient Aliens, along with guest speaking on various radio shows, programs, and podcasts. Mr. Fenton is also an author and most recently released a new book called Exogenesis, Hybrid Humans, A Scientific History of Extraterrestrial Genetic Manipulation. Bruce Fenton, welcome to Strange Uncles. Uh, thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure. And I uh, yeah, appreciate you taking your time out to talk to me. Yeah, thank you. Pleasure's all on this side. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we um, for those of you who may have already guessed, you know, you are actually sitting in England. So we got a little bit of a time difference. So we took some coordination, mm -hmm. I think, on everybody's everybody's behalf. So I appreciate the patience yeah. for everything. Um, okay. Something that, that we we've been asking a lot of our guests that come on as a recently uh, amidst everything that's going mm -hmm. on. And, and, you know, I follow mm -hmm. you on Twitter and I see your comments out there and, and, and what you, yeah. you know, the positivity you're putting out. Mm -hmm. um, how, how's environment? over where you're at how's the uh how's the atmosphere going for for those of you over there well i think where i am i'm on the coast and it's a, you know there's an area where you get quite a lot of people go walking you know walking cycling um they're getting out into the what's been good weather so i mean there's i guess there's an upbeat feeling i guess that you know with the it, weather helps doesn't it you know with mood i think that with all the things going a bit crazy you know if you're somewhere nice where you can get into the sun and you know you can get healthy I think it's balancing out some of the depressive aspects of lockdowns and distancing. And so I, I may be in a privileged location. So I, I do wonder in the cities whether it's a little bit more, you know, grim feeling. Yeah, absolutely. And I think over here, you know, we're, we're actually downtown Salt Lake City. Um, so, you know, of course, we get good weather. People get out and that really helps that uh, that mm -hmm. cabin fever that everybody's been yeah. experiencing. You know, and, and we'll hope to see what happens on this. I, I know I follow other people that are mm -hmm. kind of researching the COVID and doing some backstories on it. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't know. This is my first um, massive plague. I don't know if you guys have been yeah. through one, but, you know, this is my new one. So, Well, I suppose we all had the, you know, things like the avian flu and swine flu, but those never really manifested in the way that the models predicted. You know, they, they turned out to be just very brief flash in the pan type epidemics didn't they so um in that respect i suppose we've not had something quite comparable just the beginnings of that you know the ramp up and then it kind of faded away whereas this has kind of persisted um so i think yeah, it's, it's been a bit different yeah yeah absolutely i'm with you there um well let's start with this i guess let's jump right into it uh 
you know, you obviously have a lot of things underneath your belt. Uh, you mm -hmm. have had explorations and research and everything you donate to to this mm -hmm. you know, world of high strangeness. Um, let's talk a little bit about that history. But I'm really curious on what started you down that path and, and gave you just the, the, you know, the will to do it and, and the love for it. Mm -hmm. Sure. I mean, I, I guess going right back to very early childhood, I had a kind of a, an interest in the distant past. I mean, I used to collect fossils. And I mean, as a really a little kid, like a toddler, you know, going through the stones on the driveway, you know, looking at these little fossils and um, being kind of fascinated, you know, with the idea that you could have animals that were turned to stone, you know, that had lived a vast period ago beyond your concepts, you know, as a child, you know, to understand really better this vast period ago. So I think I was always a bit drawn to that, the mysteries of the past, you know, and um, what had happened in remote epochs. Then later on in life, I think around about 10, 11, I came in contact with the sort of mysteries of the unexplained, which was through my grandmother had, um, she used to buy these boxes of tea leaves and, and each, each box came with a free collectible card. And a lot of them are just things like flags of the world or something like that. But there was one set that was ancient mysteries, you know, unsolved mysteries of the world. And there's about 40 of these little cards. And you'd have, you know, an image on one side, so like a crystal skull, a pyramid, um, a ghost image, you know, that kind of thing. And then on the other side, it would have a little bit of a write-up. And then you're supposed to collect them, stick them in a little book, you know. Um, and that was the, that was for me, was really, I think, my first introduction to this wide range of different, ancient mysteries, paranormal phenomena, cryptids, you know, that whole shebang. And really, I, I guess, that yeah, it just caught my attention. The idea there was so many of these, you know, disparate, strange mysteries that we still left to solve in our modern era. Um, and that, yeah, from there, really, I just got kind of captivated. I will say later on, I had my own direct experiences with strange phenomena and whatnot. So it obviously became more of an intense research interest over time. But that, that's definitely how it began for me. Are you kind of amazed still? Like you mentioned that we still have all these strange things around us and these mysteries. Are, are mm -hmm. you kind of set it back a little bit that in 2020, we're still in that same situation? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? You'd think that certainly some of these like psychical research, you know, would have led us to a point where we'd be like, okay, you know, we get it now. We know how these things function, but it hasn't really moved along that much in the last couple of decades. You know, there's certainly been more studies and i think there's been more supporting evidence that the, you know, the phenomena are genuine but but as to how they function you know and as to a wider acceptance among the science community you know that hasn't really shifted much we've still got the same kind of dogmatic um views on that and the media is still fairly dismissive you know joke stories about paranormal topics so i mean we haven't come that far in the last couple of decades well it kind of seems like the more research and the more um cemented that there is a phenomenon it just creates more questions rather mm -hmm. than more answers to begin with so sometimes a little frustrating <laughs> sometimes very but, frustrating yeah, yeah um let's talk about your new book exogenesis how how long did that take for the sure. for uh how long did you have the idea to write that about this topic well that that came up for me um the topic itself i suppose for this book back in around 2013 I encountered information that was core to the book um, that was for a connection I had with a couple of Australian researchers called Stephen and Evan Strong and I, I collaborated with them on a book called Ancient Aliens in Australia um, they've also appeared on the Ancient Aliens TV show in a couple of different episodes so people will be probably familiar with them um, but they introduced me to some information over in Australia that I hadn't been aware of about uh, you know possible contacts events and stuff like that so so 
from then I was aware that there was a story of interest to me based in Australia, but I had a lot of other things going on, you know, over the years that really took precedent in terms of my own research expeditions, other stuff. And just, you know, it just had to get to the right moment where I could kind of focus in on that. So it's been bubbling for a while. Yeah. Um, would you mind explaining to our audience what exogenesis actually means? Sure. Yeah. Essentially, it's um, an alternate word for panspermia. So it's the genesis of life, but with a, a space, you know, an external exo element to it. Um, the people from panspermia, the idea that life began out in space and that then either through natural processes, life rained down on Earth. Now, those natural processes could be uh, dust or comets or something that carrying the spores of life uh, arriving here, bombarding the planet. And then you know seeding life in that respect or can be what's called directed panspermia which is you know an intelligence that directly seeds worlds or fires out you know little little sort of seeds artificial seeds containing genetic information and that arrive on worlds and then you know take root in oceans or whatever and that then life begins in that way so as opposed to the standard model which is abiogenesis and uh, life emerging from natural processes on planetary surfaces um, exogenesis and panspermia referred to this idea of a more cosmical origin for life and life spreading throughout the universe in this way. Hmm. That, that's just, you know, that idea, and I've heard that before, that, that terminology, mm -hmm. but, and I, I think nowadays, though, it's getting a little bit more prevalent. I, I see some researchers yeah. really looking more into that. What's your viewpoint of, of, mm -hmm. of, of just that scenario? Sure. Yeah, I mean, at the moment we have this, you know, there's really, there's, I suppose you could say three major perspectives on how life begins here, you know, because you've got, of course, the creationist view. God essentially creates the planet, creates life, right? You call it a sort of magical event. Um, or we have abiogenesis, I say, you know, life emerging from chemical and geological processes on Earth. All this idea that life has been somewhere else and then rained down here. Now, the, the thing that's similar with all three is you can't scientifically test them at this stage. You can't really prove them. You can't really disprove them. So none of them are entirely solid, what we call you know, scientific theories, where the best evidence all merges together and supports that you know, in a conclusive way. So they all, they're all speculations on something you know, that's quite mysterious. So I think that we have to be a, a mindful that there's validity to any of those approaches first. But what, why I prefer or I favor an exogenesis type view is that if we look at how fast life appears here, which essentially now we know, looking at the geological records, there seems to be indications of fossil life going back to about 4.1 billion years ago. Now, the assumption is that we wouldn't have found the earliest, right? That, you know, we'd be very lucky to have found the very earliest. So they speculate that could mean life began about 4.5 billion years ago. The planet's 4.6 billion years old. Mm -hmm. uh, and then on top of that, a fairly recent study, which is mentioned in the book, um, came to the conclusion that the what they call the universal common ancestor of all life on our planet uh, lived around 4.5 billion years ago. So looking at DNA data and tracing back when we all shared an origin, right? So you, you've pretty much got a strong indicator there from two directions that life began 100 million years after the planet formed. And that's kind of super fast in geological terms. You've got to think it was a hostile environment. Um, you know, there was still a bombardment of, of meteorites and asteroids. There was a lot of other... You know, our atmosphere was just developing. So it's kind of funny that life appears so fast. And it was always assumed it would take probably a billion years for random processes to give us something as complex as DNA, right? So the fact that it's gone back so early now strongly favors 
that it's begun somewhere else and has, you know, in some way either rained down onto the planet or, you know, another way been seeded here and emerges as soon as the planet is viable. You know, basically, as soon as we've got surface and oceans, uh, life emerges, which is kind of uncanny. So I think the actual timing of its emergence points towards an external influence. Now, you, could you say that's God? Could you say it's aliens? Obviously, there's different ways you can look at that. I think if you want to say it's God, then obviously you're kind of going to a magical scenario, right? Or you can't really test or put any evidence to. But with, with the external influences, you know, we can look for indicators that might support that. But I personally feel that there's a better argument for exogenesis than for the other two perspectives myself. But I, I understand that there's room for everyone to argue over that. Well, and that's definitely true too. And, and I will say, you know, we, we hear at Strange Uncles, we, we, we're not necessarily Christians, let's say that. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, you beg to differ too. You sit there and say, you know, you, you have to prove the research. Well, you know, in my opinion, mm -hmm. in our opinion, you really can't prove the, the research on God and that creationism and where that came mm -hmm. from. To mm -hmm. me, it, like you said, it's very magical. I, you know, people believe still that this earth is 6,000 years old and sure. this is what it is. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really, really, it, it's weird to have that broad of a, either you have people on this side that really has uh, collective evidence and then you still have a very, very large population of mm -hmm. people on the other side that to me and my personal opinion just doesn't make sense, but to each mm -hmm. your own, you know, with whatever they mm -hmm. believe in. Um, yeah. yeah, that's amazing. I, I've got a question. So, and some of these are pulled from John too. We both read your book. Josh is in the middle of it. Um, the fragments that you talk about in your book, so mm -hmm. that uh, TTSA require, acquired, are those the ones from Linda Moulton Howe, or is that where those fragments uh, come from? Yeah, where I mentioned TTSA, that was about the the fragments from Linda Moulton Howe, which now there's been further research which suggests that those aren't particularly anomalous. That seems to be the current um conclusion from additional studies and some older studies that have, have been kind of brought out by other people um that point to this although it's you know kind of the most famous piece of supposedly ufo debris um it does look like more recently it's kind of been shown to be not that you know fantastical so it, it probably isn't from out of this world but up to the time of writing that was kind of still um, the hypothesis that they were offering was that, you know, this was something really extraordinary, a waveguide for, mm. you know, particular energies and all this stuff. But it, it seems that that's not being supported now. Yeah, that's yeah. a bummer. That it sucks because I mm -hmm. wish it was. I wish it was some surprising thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, it is what it is. Yeah, don't we all? Um, why do you think an alien civilization would want to keep tabs on us or necessarily like plant technology on our planet to further our technology and possibly uh, our evolution as a species. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, obviously we have to um, always be mindful of course, that when we put ourselves into the position of an extraterrestrial race with an alien mind that, you know, that they will have that most likely have very different um, wants, needs, aims to us, but we can certainly, you know, we can conjecture that there's a number of reasons. I mean, I, have some reasons to suspect certain things, which I make clear in the book, you know, which I'm influenced by. Um, but we, we can certainly say that, look, if if life is being seeded, first of all, there, we can immediately assume that the intelligence has an interest in life being on other worlds and seeding them. Right? So there's some kind of strategy or plan to, to do that. It seems like an odd thing to just randomly wake up one day, you know, right, let's seed the universe with life or something. So there's, there must be a strategy or a plan. Now, if you're going to seed life somewhere and you have an interest in doing that, you probably also have an inclination to to monitor or develop that life because 
it's kind of an, an ab a very abstract project, isn't it? Where you just fire life out randomly into the universe and you don't know if it took root. You don't know if any of it reached a planet and you just go, okay, project done. Right. Yeah. That, I mean, you could do that, but yeah, yeah it's almost like, well, what if none of it reached any planets, you know? And it just, I mean, it, it just seems a very abstract plan. Now, of course that could happen, but it's an abstract plan. Now I think it's more reasonable to assume that if you're, if you've got an interest in seeding life, you're going to, if you can, go to some of those planets or in some way send out probes or something to monitor to see that life took root. So straight away, you can see why they might be at least a basic interaction between the seeding intelligence and worlds that it's targeted at the very minimum, just to see if life took root. Okay. Yeah. Now, if there is a greater strategy that you want life to develop in some specific way, then just watching is not going to be enough. You know, if you want to be able to say, okay, that we don't like the direction this evolution is going in and you want some particular gain from it, then you want to be able to interact and modify that life or sometimes selectively cull it, right? In which case, then you need to start talking about kind of either probes that are active intelligence, like artificial intelligence or robotic, you know, in some way can manipulate life on that planet. So then you can start to have more of like an interaction with life, right? So we can, we can imagine a scenario where you have a grand plan to develop life up to intelligence, say, you know, or hominin forms, or there's some specific direction, you're going to have to be able to intervene in the development of that world. Now that gives us a very basic scenario for why an intelligence might be here or on other inhabited planets. If it's a seeding race and it's doing this everywhere, then it may well have influences on many, many planets where life has taken root and it's kind of shepherding it. And straight away that also overcomes a lot of um, arguments from the skeptics about, well, why would life, you know, why would aliens come here? Why would they be interested in us? How would they find us and all this kind of stuff? But if you start from the premise that they most likely seeded us, all of those arguments vanish. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. yeah, that's a very, very good viewpoint to it. Um, we're going to take a quick commercial break uh, and then I've got a follow up question. And then, John, I don't know if you want to follow up after that with the about the chapter you had mentioned. But um, stand by, Bruce. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. What up? Far knockers. Aries. Stop insulting people. These are potential listeners. Yeah, I'm so sure. Happy horror coffee break, old time horror radio show. We take the best and worst <laughs> creepy pasta stories online, and our finest of quality reenactors perform them for you in the style of old timey horror radio dramas. Everyone knows it's just you disguising your voice poorly. No, it's not. Besides, we have an abundance of great guests. There's music and t-shirts. And a bunch of dick and fart jokes. You're not wrong. <laughs> Catch us on all the major podcast thingamawoppers. We're on Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Schlapstick, Hard Knockers, and the rest. Idiot. Tune in every other Friday. There's a new episode. Or just stick your head in an oven. Same difference. Aries. <laughs> we need to have a little chat. <laughs> Toodles! The fourth hand shines. All right, and we're back. Um, I had a follow-up question about that. When you when you talk about other alien civilizations, not just using us for a seedling, but maybe they have thousands out there, for example. But do you mm -hmm. do you lean towards that, or do you lean towards, for whatever reason, we think that we're the special ones? Does that make sense? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would lean towards the idea there would be multiple. I mean, if you have an interest in seeding worlds, it to me would seem that you at the very least would want some backups, you know, in case something happens, you know, something up. goes particularly wrong. Yeah, yeah, there's just something extraordinary that I don't know, that sun explodes or, you know, if there's something just you can't account for. I mean, because things happen in our universe, you know, you can have suddenly a star explodes somewhere else and a beam of energy wipes out that sector of the, of the cosmos, right? So if you're really on that scale where you can do these kind of projects, I would suspect you're going to have a few of them. Mm. Okay. Very good point. It's, it's always good to have a contingency plan. That's why I always plant more mm. than one tomato plant. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. Just in case. Um, so yeah, in your book, I believe it was uh, chapter six. I love, I think that was one mm. of my favorite chapters in the book uh, encounters with alien technology. Um, would you just mind walking us through that chapter just a little bit? Maybe mm -hmm. some cliff notes on that. I know I don't want you to give it all away, but just a little something. Sure. I mean, one of the things that one of the stories I was quite interested in, which um, hopefully grabs other people, was this um, this this tale from the Himalayas. You know, we have this story that um, there's a you know a high uh, Lama kind of Rinpoche teacher, you know, with these developed psychical abilities. You know, obviously in the Himalayan region. That's a commonly accepted, you know, scenario that there are people who've meditated all their lives. Uh, they develop certain special abilities, telepathy, um, you know, predictive powers, all sorts of stuff. So we have this character that's allegedly one of these people, and he, he is, has a, you know, has a kind of a, a dream experience where he finds out where the location is for a, a particular special object or text. You know, they have these. These, um, this is a common tradition, actually, in Himalayas, that you can have visions or dreams about places where ancient texts or artifacts have been hidden. And a lot of high lamas say they have this, and they might go and dig up uh, an object, and they'll find, say, an ancient Buddhist text that's been hidden by another master hundreds of years ago. Now, this is, it sounds bizarre, perhaps, to, to the Western minds, but that's something that's commonly accepted there, that this is done. People hide things for future use. Now, he, he has this experience, and he goes and he asks his nephew, who's also quite a you know, a highly developed meditation expert. Because what do you think I should do? You know, do you think we should go and do this? Or should I go on my own and have a look? Or should we take some people with us? And, you know, the, the nephew kind of says, well, look, if you take a group of people and you find it, it helps strengthen their belief in Buddhism and in, and in the teachings that you have these developed powers and you're kind of showing them a demonstration of this. And so the master kind of sees wisdom in this. And so they go along with this whole group of people and they end up at this cliff face. And he kind of just throws this pickaxe up at this cliff face and it sticks in you know so you wouldn't expect that in a stone face and so he says well that's that's where this object is and so they send the guy up on a ladder and he says you know you break through and they sort of hit this it just crumbles and you realize it's a fake cliff face and so he, he finds there's something in there which he wraps in a cloth as a don't the guy says don't touch it you know essentially you're given the indication it could be harmful to touch you know there's something strange in there it takes out this object comes back down and when they when they unravel it you have sort of a melon sized glowing orb which is you know they said made of unknown material this completely bizarre object which has been hidden by someone now this master kind of says you know this has been hidden by the um uh, by these other beings i forgot the, the names gone for a moment but he says it's been hidden by these beings and he says okay we'll take it back to the house he locks it away in a chest because i don't think it's, it's time yet to be kind of fully revealed what it is and what it does so we're going to put it away seals it with wax seals and puts it away and then when they go back to look at it again despite the seals being unbroken this thing has vanished 
And so, you know, we have these kind of tales around the world where there are artifacts that seem to be, you know, objects, technologies that are left here, you know, in certain places, maybe hidden away that, that could well represent technologies from, you know, an extraterrestrial or interdimensional uh, presence, which has high technology uh, that is totally alien to us. And I, I really thought that story really stood out because it wasn't from an alien book. You know, it's not somebody trying to convince us that there's aliens or interdimensional beings. It's just it was part of a book, you know, a book on Buddhism. It was just kind of <laughs> mentioning this Crazy. strange story, you know, no reason to really to make it up. It was kind of quite engaging. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no, for them, I mean, what is it going to matter for them? It, it, mm-hmm. it's just, right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah, they have no agenda to no yeah. anything. No, absolutely not the premise of his book or, or anything. You know, it's just one of these things he said that happened to him, you know, in, in his life in the Himalayas. That's just correct. Well, and that's not only the, the only story. So, folks, the, the book is, is full of stuff. Um, and there was one uh, gal that you had mentioned and, and kind of and you met with her, I believe. I don't know if it's just you and your, your wife, mm-hmm. uh, Valerie Barrow. Was that? Yeah. 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 Just kind of had this interaction with an artifact called a what well, the Aboriginal people call a Turinga. Well, I say particularly there's a couple of different groups here in Australia, particularly the Ararente people who have this tradition of Turinga artifacts. Now, these are usually typically a small, flat, was tablet like object. You feel like stone tablets, like a kind of tablet like object. Uh, and the, according to the legends, the oldest ones, the original ones, go back to the time of the creation of humans and you know other animals, and the, the, this what's called the Altringa time, the creation time. Now, there's more modern copies of these, but they're considered to be equally sacred. Now, the oldest ones, many of them, are, well, I don't know how many they were supposed to be, but they say they, they think these are kind of lost. But yeah, Valerie has this interaction where somebody asks her, can she temporarily look after a Tringa? and so that they're trying to return it to the owners, you know, which is near Uluru, the, the people who would traditionally be custodians of this, because it was taken, I think it's about a century before, that it was a ca- uh, camel traders. You know, they used to have camels that go across the, the deserts in Australia doing trades, right? This was kind of a thing. Um, and that somebody had found one of these hidden in a cave, and this, was like this glowing, again, a luminous artifact, and that they had taken it with them. And so it ended up being kind of, you know, European kind of family. Um, and this this person was trying to return this object, knowing it was sacred and it shouldn't really be away from that that people. Uh, they asked Valerie, could she just temporarily look after it because they they had a severe health condition, had to go to hospitals for treatment. Uh, Valerie's house is called Algeringa, and they took that as a kind of a symbolic thing, you know, that she's somebody we should ask to look after. You know, if you've got those kind of I guess metaphysical spiritual views with right. synchronicities and stuff, so it kind of made sense to them, and they knew that she was. Um, She's like a regression therapist, kind of holistic, you know, new age kind of thinker. So not so strange to ask them, can they look after a weird artifact, right? Then if you ask <laughs> your local lawyer or someone, it'd be like, what are you talking about? Yeah. So, so she was okay with that. And then almost, you know, immediately after taking this thing, put it in a box, looking after it in a you know, different room, just put it away. She started having these kind of voice contacts, director to skull kind of voice contacts. Um, not, you know, booming voice in your house, everyone can hear, but something that was directly interfacing and giving you information about what it claimed was a past visitation, modification of human beings, you know, a craft arriving here, mm. a, a whole lost history, which is, you know, obviously covered in the book in depth, um, but it came about in that way. Now, I just say it's very quickly, so that sounds, again, very extraordinary and woo, but then we actually have in MIT and stuff, these technologies being worked on with voice-to-skull interfaces. So, it's actually no longer something we can dismiss as, hey, you know, that's just woo-woo. It's like, well, hang on, we're actually making things right. that can do that. Right, right, right. Yeah. 
Uh, that this uh, that story is amazing. And actually, I looked up her website. Um, that was something mm-hmm. that I, I think I DM'd you one night late about the book you mm-hmm. had mentioned. Uh, and yeah. you know, of course, you know, hey, I'll look up a book. Mm-hmm. It I think the cost on it was eight hundred and thirteen dollars or something to that, <laughs> to that yeah. weird extent. Yeah, it's out of print. Yeah, yeah, I'm like, what is Bruce doing recommending a thousand dollar? But reaching out <laughs> yeah. to her directly for the website, which was your idea, and, and that's fantastic. So I've got to email yeah. out, and uh, you know, we'll see if she yeah. bites. But um, yeah, just phenomenal mm-hmm. story, you know, altogether. Um, I, I don't know. I, I've got a couple more questions, but John, did you sure. want to cover another one or Josh? Um, I was, I was just thinking um, kind of those, it just came to mind. I think I would probably freak out if I saw some of the things that she kind of mm. was tra- what she saw from mm-hmm. like 780,000 years ago and these battles. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how I could come back to this present day. Right. and like, and be function. okay like yeah. i would just be like sitting in my room just like i i don't know how to process anything like i i don't know how i could go back so it's mm-hmm. it's impressive that she can you know she can well, keep her wits about her i mean definitely i think it's changed i mean i, I don't know her exact circumstances at the time but i mean if anyone goes to a website I mean, she's obviously very much into uh, new age and channeling and you know holistic topics now and i don't know if that's part of result of that interaction and changing her life because of such strange things happening mm-hmm. but definitely is not living what we would think of as conventional life so i don't think this happened and then she just was able just to you know yeah. okay well i'll go back to being a normal you know, business woman so I, I i think it probably only a certain type of person could process that yeah. uh, and, and if you do have an interest like that probably your life would end up being more metaphysical in some respects now sure i don't necessarily like believe or agree with the other things that she talks about but I, I can understand that with those interactions why her life is very much about anomalous topics and you know contacts and channelings i can understand if you've had these kind of things that your life probably won't ever go back to being mm-hmm. like totally normal yeah sure yeah um and correct me if i say this wrong i'm not exactly sure but could you explain for our listeners uh the alcu beer drive uh, like what that is yeah. and what other theoretical possibilities are out there that might have mm-hmm. helped our alien ancestors reach mm-hmm. Earth? Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, the idea that anyone can visit us from space, you straight away have the issue of, you know, how do you get here? You know, it's uh, we know it can't be rockets. I mean, once upon a time, obviously, you know, it was very popular, the idea that beings were visiting us from, a, you know, a ninth planet and our solar system in rocket ships, you know, and all this. And, you know, See this kind of Sitchin story, people are familiar with that. Right. Um, but now we kind of know that it's, it's very unlikely rocket ships are going to be carrying people around the universe, right? You know, to get here from anywhere meaningfully far away. Um, you need these kind of technologies like the Old Computer Drive, which is kind of you create a bubble of space time around the ship. And so from your perspective, you know, you're kind of bending space around you. You're not really propelling through it. Now, this allows you to travel essentially almost instantaneously from different locations so it, it also you start going into this thing of time travel because if you know if you're bending space time you know, you're also kind of you're, you're bending time not just space now the, the same kind of goes for wormhole technology is another thing which i talk about in the book that again if you can uh, bend two points in space time together so they meet and you kind of almost punch it through that fabric of space time and come out the other side and then it snaps back and so you're kind of propelled to this new location having joined two points, you know, and then it snaps apart. You, you're now staying at point B. So 
again, the, the thing about these these kind of technologies, which are theoretical, you know, in terms of human human technology, we understand that they're theoretically possible. You know, we've got Einstein, Rosen, Bridge, right? Einstein and, and Rosen mm -hmm. came to this conclusion that you could theoretically have a, a kind of white hole, wormhole opening that could lead you somewhere. And in fact, in, in recent times, there was a, a paper came out on black holes, and they they realized that a very large, slow rotating black hole could potentially act as a doorway to somewhere else. So that again is, you know, our understanding of these anomalies is moving to a point where we do now think you could go through them. They wouldn't necessarily destroy you, right? Which used to be the, the idea. So if you can conjure up one of these using exotic matter and incredible energy, um, you could essentially time travel where you bend space time and end up instantaneously somewhere, which otherwise would have took you thousands of years, you know, or millions of years to get to depending on where in the universe you're coming from. So yeah, these are the kind of technologies I think we're dealing with when we talk about visitations or have to be, otherwise they couldn't perhaps get here. Sure. Do you think, and in, in, in number one, the, the topic of time travel and, and quantum physics and, and that whole realm just fascinates me. Do mm -hmm. you think we're gonna see some progress in our lifetime on those aspects or, 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 or do you think we're looking in the right direction, I guess is, is the question. Right. I think that if we look at the history of contact and science, that the two aren't separate. And we know there's a number of cases where people have said that they've had kind of divine inspirations or contact with intelligences that have given them mathematical formulas. In fact, there's um, one of the one of the guys that was involved at the Rendlesham UFO incidents, mm -hmm. um, which obviously was over a period of several days with soldiers interacting with um aerial anomalies of all kinds, as well as landed anomalies. Um, that in that case, more recently, it's come out that one of the people said that they received a download of scientific information that would totally change the way that we traveled through space and time. Um, but they don't, want, they don't want that information to be used because it's too frightening as to the, how that could be used, particularly in what we have now, a very a military industrial complex headed a kind of system right so i think that this kind of contact and download is not that uncommon so if we have a leap forward i don't think it's going to be that you know somebody just goes through the maths again and works out how to create a wormhole or that you know anything i think it would be you'd have to be some kind of interaction with these intelligences um where they give us the information you know and essentially tell us how to like in the movie contact right right right, right? Where you know we're given the plans to build the device. I don't think that we're near building it in a natural progress. But if these intelligences are there shepherding us along, at any moment they can reach in and give us information that totally radically changes how things are done. Now that might be what we're seeing with these naval UFOs, right? Uh, nobody's quite sure. Are those navy craft? You know, are they military craft? Are they aliens? Now, if they're military craft and they're breaking the laws of physics, my go-to answer for that is: well, somebody's giving us the plans. Right. It's too far ahead. Right. I mean, that's that's literally light years ahead. You can see tech, like DARPA, you know, he's famous for having technology out 40 years prior than the rest of us. But this is unfathomable. This is just something yeah. that's on another like, scale. Almost teleportation type speeds, you know, where you just yeah. one minute is there. And that's, so and I've seen I've seen a craft like that you know, when I was younger. I was about 20. And I, again, it's in the book. I mentioned that I did witness a craft jumping around the skies at night. Um, near where I'm from in Gloucestershire in the southwest of England and it was it was essentially teleporting around the sky or moving so fast that my eyes couldn't keep up with it so it depends on how you look at it but it, it to me it looked like it was teleporting it appeared at different points in the sky and at that moment I thought well 
either that's aliens or we've recovered something or had interaction because it's, it's too far ahead. The idea that in the 1990s that we had a teleporting RAF plane, I just, you know, it's beyond my right. belief that we could have got that far ahead of everyone back in the 90s. Like you said, these are hundreds of years ahead technologies, if not thousands of years. Absolutely. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, if not thousands. For sure. yeah. it's, it's definitely not something we're going to have in 2070. Not in a normal curve of development, no. Exactly. No. no. Well, and I'm glad you brought that up about your personal experiences. And and if you don't mind, I'd like to shift the gears a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. In the book, you mentioned your wife and you mentioned some Mm -hmm. of the encounters that she had, some of the experiences. Um, And without getting too personable, but uh, I mean, I'm hoping that that's what drew you to Mm -hmm. her. Maybe there there was other factors. But how do you, how does she perceive things? How do you guys together when you have these encounters, you look for these encounters, what's that look in your personal life? Yeah. I mean, look, it's quite extraordinary. I mean, she, she sort of clarifies a bit in the book. I mean, she's always had strange things happening. She's one of those people that's kind of a magnet for the bizarre, you know, she remembers being a toddler, having all of like entities in the room um, of different kinds. Mm. Um, she's also, she's a spiritualist medium. So she's pretty much always seen spirits around her. Um, so she's had that extraordinary, well, well for most people, extraordinary. So for her is semi-normal. You know, obviously you're, you're aware, yeah, it's life, but you're aware it's, it's abnormal because other people tell you, right, that it's not happening to them. Sure. Um, but in terms of, yeah, with, with our situation, I think as we, when we came together, um, a new kinds of strangeness entered her life because she hadn't had that kind of abduction contact, astral travel. I mean, it's really hard to define it, but, but what happened to her was that, you know, she began to have these experiences where she would go unconscious, find her her consciousness or a soul or having a look at that would be transported from her body to somewhere else. And in most cases, not just to somewhere else, but into someone else and being in what felt like someone else's physical body and having an experience living their life. And in particular, a life in the seventh century in the city of um, Palenque down in Mayan, Mexico. Right. So, I mean, that's as, as far and extraordinary as, Anything I've ever heard, you know, and from my perspective, you know, I would see her in these states. I would know because she would come to me mumbling in what to me, I, I believe is Mayan, because I would try to record these things. I look up some of the words and it does seem to be Mayan language. Um, and would also sometimes be kicking the wall or, you know, moving around. Like, you know, if you see someone having a very vivid, almost sleepwalking experience, have you ever seen that? You know, sometimes people do kick or they say something in their sleep. Or, but that, but times 10 where they you know would be kicking the wall or groaning in pain you know so it was a very even from my perspective not being there i could see something very strange was happening to her regularly um so yeah it was very odd and it did involve beings that were interacting with her and they were telling her that you know that they were kind of from elsewhere in the universe in these states you know they were telling her this stuff um, and it was, you know, we don't know, and we don't have a word for it exactly, because again, look, you know, you have to be open-minded, like, could be something beaming a, a scenario into your head, right, you know, hacking your brain, giving you some kind of fully immersive virtual reality experience, or you could literally, in some respect, your consciousness is being taken back to some other time, you know, there's, there's with any psychical and paranormal things, I always think you, you can put, you know, three, four, five different interpretations on them, and, that, and that's often the problem, where someone will say, well, you know, oh, that must be past lives. Well, yeah, it could be, but could be X, Y, Z, you know, it's very hard. All I can say is it, extraordinary experiences uh, that have changed her, and she'd admit that herself, it changed her personality. Because imagine that you were living a separate life with other children um, and with what seems to be another version of me, 
you know, in this other time mm. and with a whole family situation and then crazy stuff going on there with other beings and hidden rooms under the city with archives of objects and calendars under there about changes that were coming and like, you know, it's mind bent. I mean, it's a whole movie or book or something in itself. And like, you know, we share a few talking points from it, but at the same time, I'm always aware that it's probably one of the most extraordinary stories that anyone could ever hear, quite honestly. You know. it, it, it's just, it's amazing. I'm mean, like you said, I, I can't even fathom. I, I've heard of people having mm-hmm. experiences like that, but not to what you described mm-hmm. in the book. Um, does she still have these experiences? Is this still active for her or is this? But very rare. She, very rare now. It's occasionally, I mean, probably in the last couple of years, one or two times. But during the, the first 18 months when this started, it was often three times a week kind of thing. So it was really intensive. Uh, and on some occasions, you know, she actually came back ill and with marks, you know, black eyes. And other case, she was vomiting. And you imagine going, nothing wrong with you. Mm-hmm. So in the experience, they gave her something to drink. And she, like, came back around vomiting, like, in the bed. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, like, it was extraordinary. You imagine being poisoned in your dream or something, right? And then you're vomiting and horribly ill when you come back around. I mean, so there's a very fine line between that. And I, I, I cover that a little bit in the book. You know, there's, um, in the same story, I talk about that, that llama, I think, I, do I mention this in the book or not? But the same llama who found that object. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's also a story in, from the same book where they talk about um, the, the nephew talks about having a dream, a really vivid, like this. He has lucid dreams. He said, like, I got to a point in his meditation that every night he controls his dreams. He has lucid dreams every night. So if you meditate regularly, you can do that. You can go into your sleep, staying aware. And he yeah. says that in this, one of these lucid dreams, he was interacting with um, these beings that, you know, they could be these kind of spiritual beings. And one of them came to him and said, you know, I've got this scroll for your uncle. And he said, so he put this little scroll in his hand. And he said, so he held it and he like put his arms around it. And he said, when he woke up, he realized his hands were still together. And he looked and he said, there really was a scroll in his hand. So he went up to the cave where his uncle was meditating. He said, like, usually don't disturb high lama, you know, kind of people don't meditate. He said he was so excited. He said, even though he has all these strange experiences himself, he was like, he never had that happen. Mm-hmm. So he like goes to his uncle and said, like, uncle, you know, the, <laughs> the divas gave me this scroll for you and stuff. And the uncle just goes, ah, I was expecting that. Just takes it and walks <laughs> back in the cave, right? So, I mean, it's, it does seem that in some senses, the there's a very thin barrier between what we think of as the unconscious, the dreams, right? And these, these other states and our physical world. And that sometimes that's permeated. And I have heard of other people coming back from dreams with the pieces of glass stuck in their hand where they broke a glass in their hands and they had shreds of glass in that. So they, it's super weird, but it does seem that in some cases you can bring things back from those other states. Yeah. I've, I've always kind of thought like, you know, what's to say that this isn't the dream and Mm -hmm. in this other realm, that's reality or in your wife's case, you know, Mm -hmm. she's kind of living a dual life. And when she's in this realm, it kind of seems like this dream, this kind of Mm -hmm. crazy Mm -hmm. thing that's happened, but maybe Mm -hmm. when she's there, this is the dream and this seems crazy and far off. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, if if you look at contactee cases, um, DMT kind of cases, shamanic journey, a lot of those, you know, and the NDE, a lot of the things people say is it was more real than this world and that there's a hyper reality to those altered state experiences that when they come back here, this does feel almost like, hey, how come this doesn't feel as real as when I'm in those states, right? So there is some sort of strange aspect to this that, yeah, maybe that we are in a not quite fully revealed reality, right? Where there's a, 
there's other aspects to it that make this not re not as real as we think it is or something like that yeah and that yeah, this i think there's an overlap between dreams reality you know lucid dreaming i sometimes think that to be honest that this, that we have like a uh, a third state you know that there's something between sleeping um, lucid dreaming normal consciousness there's something like a waking lucid dream in which you have some of these experiences like the con like when you have ufo experiences a lot of times what you'll hear is the process everything goes quiet they feel like they're removed from time and space although they're still in the same location they can't hear any animals they can't hear anything like and then there's a hyper reality to it during the experience and i think that we slip into some kind of altered brain state which is really between the lucid dream and fully awaking that you know you're, you're, it's, it's subtle but if you could have monitoring on someone's brain you know when they're in these states i suspect we'll find that they are in some kind of in-between place that's i i love that and i couldn't oh. agree more you've said it way more eloquently than i could <laughs> ever but um yeah i i'm all for that i it just kind of makes sense when you really really think about it for sure it really does i i wish to god that this was a fake life i was living it would make me so much more happier but you know, it is what it is um do you guys well, have 2020 any... seems like it is a a fake year, uh, yeah, it? it's too bonkers. So. When you were describing the beginning of time and like lava and asteroids hitting, I was like, mm -hmm. wait, is he describing 2020 or the beginning of the dawn of time? I, I forget. It's awful. It's just awful. <laughs> you wake up on the wrong side of the decade for some reason. Yep. I don't know how that happened. Mm -hmm. um, I don't really have any more questions other than I just want to just give it a, a huge thank you, Bruce. I know you've been patient through this. Um, do you, do you want to have any follow-up? Do you have any follow-up questions or uh, promote anything other than your new book or how people can find you mm -hmm. sure um well see the the book is out in the u.s completely it's on audible it's on you know kindle print um i have a very small number of copies that i can autograph and i hope i'll be getting more so in the future if people want autograph copies they can contact me um the uk it's mostly released the print version doesn't arrive here i think until the end of the month and you on amazon later on i think it's july so they can put it into shops, but not necessarily on Amazon. So okay. I mean, the way it's worked, because of coronavirus and stuff, get, getting the books to Europe, I think has been a problem. Yeah. Um, so people just be aware of that. But they can still get the Kindle and they can get the Audible version. Um, in terms of other stuff, I've got a short video, like a 45-minute video production about the same book content, which is coming, which I think should be um, available by, I would say, by the end of this month. So obviously I, I can let you guys know and I'll let people know oh, online. Yeah. Fantastic. If anyone follows me on Twitter, I'm on there, Exogenesis HH, and you'll see like, a wide range of strange things I come out with. Um, but also, I guess Facebook, you can reach me through Facebook. I don't use it a lot. And email bruce at brucefenton.info. So someone wants to ask me something or get hold of me. And also my website, brucefenton.info, um, hybridhumans.net, and ancientnews.net. So you know there's a range of places they can see me i've also been i've seen ancient aliens season 14 and 15 so people can kind of catch me on there if they're going through you know, the history channel sort of catch-up shows um maybe they'll have me back on there i don't know we'll see when all the filming starts again you know as places are opening up again but we'll see so. it's amazing that show is, is ran as long as it has you know it, it's just mm. it blows my mind um yeah and just mm -hmm. again just to reiterate it's a fantastic read actually so i I've read it literally within, I think, a day and a half, and then I shuffled mm -hmm. it over to uh, John and, and to Josh. Um, and again, that book is Exogenesis, Hybrid Humans, A Scientific History of Extraterrestrial Genetic Manipulation. Um, very, very fun read. And uh, and so mm -hmm. is your uh, your previous book. A little bit different of a format, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but still, j just your writing style, I, I find very comfortable. 
And so that's, thank you. That's mm -hmm. awesome. And, uh, we're going to go ahead and do a quick wrap up. Um, but if you don't mind staying on the line real quick, Bruce, sure. we got a couple things for you. Um, ladies yep. and gentlemen, strangers, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, again, we've been wanting to get this, uh, get this out for a long time. If you need to write us back, you have any comments on the interview, by all means, you can. It's strangeuncles at gmail.com. Uh, you can call us as well, 801-252-6945. Um, and you can find us on all social platforms. And uh, if you're really crazy and you want to have more of us, which I don't see why you wouldn't, uh, you can go ahead and reach out to patreon.com slash strange uncles, um, become a member. You know, we got all things uh, out there and all kinds of little special things. And Bruce, hopefully we can find time to get you back earlier than later. Mm -hmm. uh, and thank you much. Thank you all. Yeah. Thank you. Close gates. You've been listening to a fourth hand production.